Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it's a warm and sunny day in Los Angeles, and yesterday I found myself at One Spirit Center for Conscious Living in Simi Valley, California. My friend, Dr. Dennis Merritt Jones invited me to speak in his place. He was uh, out of town. And the title of my talk was Enlightenment. What a trip. At the end of my talk, uh, I did a harmonica solo with uh, Andy Howe, who uh, played the organ. And so we uh, had a call and response to begin with, and then uh, I took off and uh, did some blues in the key of G. So I hope you find it interesting. Hope you find it useful. My talk at One Spirit, Center for Conscious Living, Enlightenment. What a trip. Such a quiet, sedate singer. I wish she would really let her passion out someday. <laughs> Joy, my goodness. You are aptly named, aren't you? <laughs> I have a very great gift for you this morning. This is what you've all been waiting for. Our friend, a wonderful, wonderful man, a musician, a humorist. God, the list could go on and on and on. This man will, will help you when you're down. He'll help you soar when you're up. There's all kinds of things that this man does for me. My friend. Reverend Kusala. That's a lot to live up to. I'm... Yeah, it is, isn't it? So I'm going to talk uh, today about enlightenment. You know, and people are confused about enlightenment, not quite sure what it is, how to get there, what it means once you do get there. And, and I was that way as well. I'm trying to figure out what the heck is enlightenment, because people keep talking about it all the time. And, and as a Buddhist, we have enlightenment, but we also have nirvana. And I have come to understand that enlightenment and nirvana are two different things, not the same thing. So let me give you a definition uh, for nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering. Nirvana is the end of karma. Nirvana is the end of all future rebirths. Okay. Now, a lot of people aren't going to jump up and say, I don't want to be reborn anymore doesn't sound like it's the kind of thing we want to do. But for a Buddhist, the end of birth means the end of suffering. Because one of the problems with suffering is that it happens because we were born. It happens because we all get sick. It happens because we all get old. It happens because we all die. And we don't want any of that stuff to happen. And it does anyway. So we suffer. 
So perhaps you could say nirvana is nothing more than a profound acceptance of the way things are. Of the way things are. But I have come to understand that's not what enlightenment is. Now, if any of you are my age, and I think some of you might be, uh, there was this fellow named Tim Leary. You know? And, and, and I just happened to spend half a day on YouTube a couple weeks ago, and he has a whole lot of stuff on YouTube. And he was talking about turning on, tuning in, dropping out, you know, challenge all authority. Don't trust anyone over 30. Of course, he was at the time, but it's okay. And, and it was really interesting to hear what he had to say and to see how much suffering he went through in his lifestyle and perhaps his search for enlightenment. Now, there are a couple of interviews of him towards the end of his life. And, and, and I must say, he wasn't as profound at the end of his life as he was at the beginning. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know if that's enlightenment. And then one of my favorite teachers, Ram Das. You know, they have a whole lot of videos on him as well. And I watched them. I even bought this DVD that I found on Amazon.com called Aliens from Spaceship Earth. <laughs> and I took it to the Buddhist club at UCLA and we watched it one night. And this was the Asian invasion of the 60s. We had all these gurus coming over, you know, Muktananda, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and talking about enlightenment. And we had all these really young, sort of long-haired children, almost children, I'd say, teenagers, early 20s, just looking up at them like they must have the answer. And they were just sitting so quietly and so peacefully listening. And I was listening carefully to what they were saying. And to be honest with you, I didn't find it very profound. I found it sort of commonsensical, you know, you know, do good things, don't hurt yourself, don't hurt others, devotional practices, and one day your mind will be purified and you'll be enlightened and then everything will be okay. And then I went to Wikipedia and I did a search for all these gurus in this video to see how their life ended. You know? And I realized some of them took the money and went home. Some of them died. And some of them changed their organizational names so they could continue to profit and profess. And I'm going, okay, now is that enlightenment? Well, you know, I don't know. That's not the kind of enlightenment I wanted. I asked my friend Mary at the meditation center where I live. I said, Mary, if you were to... Give me a definition of enlightenment. She was born Catholic and she found a guru and she's been studying Hinduism. She's been to an ashram in India a few times now and, and sometimes she puts the red dot on her forehead. I said, Mary, what is enlightenment? To you, you've been practicing now and studying. What would you say a definition of enlightenment would be? She said, becoming one with everything.
becoming one with everything. I said, Mary, did you ever hear that old joke about the Hindu and the hot dog vendor? You know? She said, no. I said, well, the Hindu comes up to the hot dog vendor and says, make me one with everything. And I'm going, okay. So... So I found a couple definitions of enlightenment that I thought was that I thought was interesting. Kant's opening paragraph on the essay is a much cited definition of enlightenment. He says, enlightenment is man's emergence from self-imposed immaturity for which for which he himself was responsible. Immaturity and dependence uh, are the inability to use one's own intellect without the direction of another. Then he goes on to say, dare to know is therefore the slogan of enlightenment. Dare to know. I found a couple Hindu ideas about enlightenment. Enlightenment is the experience slash non-experience resulting in the realization of one transcendent self which exists beyond time, form, and space. That's good, too. Complicated, but good. In Hinduism, liberation occurs when the individual soul, human, mind, spirit, recognizes its identity with the ground of all being the source of all phenomenal existence known as Brahma. Okay, well, that's... I like it. It's profound. It's big, too, because it includes everything. Buddhism quotes, When you get to this enlightenment, then thoughts become still without being stilled. Calmness and insight arise without being produced. The mind of the Buddha appears without being revealed. Wow, now that's heavy. You know? And finally, a famous Zen master said, If you believe you are enlightened, you are actually a little bit crazy. sort of like that one the best myself, you know. So now I had to come up with a definition of enlightenment. What is enlightenment, I said to myself? What's all the confusion in Buddhism? Why do we keep using enlightenment and nirvana in the same sentence, and yet they have two completely different meanings? It seemed to me, as I continued to read about Buddhism and the Mahayana tradition where enlightenment is the goal, and the Theravada tradition, the early Buddhist tradition, where nirvana is the goal, the Buddha didn't talk about enlightenment, he talked about nirvana. So this is my definition of enlightenment. The wisdom of emptiness. The wisdom of emptiness. I think that describes the enlightenment experience. Now, I'm going to explain to you why I think that 
describes it. As I started to meditate, as I started to study Buddhism, I couldn't figure out what emptiness was. Was it nothing? Was that my goal? I wanted everything. I didn't want nothing. I couldn't see any benefit in nothing. It seemed like it was a bit nihilistic, actually. So, I said to myself, well, empty of what? Empty of everything? Well, then, it seems that Buddhism is called the middle path because of emptiness. Now, the middle path, on one end of the path, we have the Republicans. <laughs> on the other end of the path, we have the Democrats. They both have a value, but as we get closer to the middle, the value seems to go away. And when you're actually in the middle, it has no value whatsoever. It's neither good nor bad, neither right nor wrong. And I'm going, okay, so, so maybe emptiness is like this middle place where there isn't any value. It's beyond concept. And then I said, but, but still, that doesn't really satisfy me. Because I need to even make it simpler than that. I'm a simple kind of guy. And, and everybody gets so profound, and some of that stuff I just read is so profound. And it went right over my head. So I said, well, empty of what? Empty of what? What do they want us to empty? And then I figured it out. Empty of self. Self-transcendence. Empty. Empty of self. Now... Self is oftentimes looked at being independent. That we exist independently from each other. And we have our life, and, and you have your life, and, and I'm this way, and you're that way, and I'm good, or I'm not good, and you're good, and you're not good, and I'm able to understand the world because of that dichotomy. Because I'm separate. And when I looked at all the other animals walking in the world, I'm thinking, we really have an advantage over them, because we're separate. They're still connected in a very special way to their environment. We have left our environment. We are now free from our environment to do anything we want with our environment. And we have decided as a group, often called humankind, that we will destroy the world. <laughs> and we're doing a pretty good job of it. And we have this thing called global warming, and everybody's saying, save the planet, save the planet. We've got to change our lifestyles. The planet needs us to save it. And you know what? The planet doesn't care. <laughs> we care, because the planet will be here. We won't. <laughs> you know... So let's save the humans. <laughs> so as I thought about this, I'm thinking, okay, empty of independent existence. Enlightenment, the direct experience of enlightenment, is empty of independent existence. 
we do not exist independently at an ultimate level of reality. All the things I've just talked about is experienced and understood at a relative level. It's the mind level. It's the intellect level. We need the intellect. We need the mind. We don't want to get rid of that. It's our gift in this lifetime. It's the human gift. We can think. We can add. We can subtract. We can almost remember dates. <laughs> you know? Is it the 23rd or the 22nd? Well... <laughs> so I don't want to kill self and you know back in the 50s and 60s kill self, get rid of self self is the problem it's no good it's why you aren't enlightened and I'm thinking no, no, no was that Amy Winehouse that said that? no, no, no that that we don't want to kill self, we want to transcend self. Self is a tool. We need to use self to live in this very complicated world. I live in downtown L.A. I drove all the way here. If I didn't have self, I would be in Pacoima. <laughs> <Don't>. <laughs> so as I, as I started to understand more that it's not about killing self, it's about transcending self, I said, well, what can my meditation practice do for me? How can I transcend self? in my meditation practice. And in Buddhism, we have two kinds of practice. We have vipassana, insight. We have samana, samatha, tranquility. And our job is to use both of them. One allows us to become enlightened. One allows us to achieve nirvana. The Buddha was taught how to do samatha meditation, which is the meditation that leads us to enlightenment. The Buddha rediscovered insight meditation, which led him to nirvana. When he came to his nirvana at the age of 35, he stopped practicing vipassana. He had reached its fruition, the end of the road. The path was clear. He had found the end. But he continued to do tranquility meditation, samatha meditation, until he died. His last moment on earth was spent in the deepest level of samatha meditation. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to do Samatha meditation. I'm going to do what the Buddha did. I want to see what it's like. And so I found this book, the Vasudhimagga, The Path of Purification. It goes into great detail about how to do it. I sat down. I reflected on the jhanas, the four jhanas, the four levels of tranquility. The first level of tranquility has five characteristics. Applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The second jhana has three characteristics, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The third jhana has two characteristics, happiness and equanimity. The fourth jhana has one characteristic, equanimity in the middle, perfect balance, no value. So I'm going, okay, this is so cool. So I sat down. I came to the sensation of breath that I felt at the tip of my nose, and I really worked hard at holding my attention on that sensation, applied thought and sustained thought. As I continued to hold my attention on the sensation of breath, a great sense of physical pleasure arose in my body. I had come home. My mind and body 
became connected in the present moment experience of my life. I had a great sense of happiness. There was an ease. There was a peacefulness about coming home. And I started to feel balance, the first, the first glimmer of equanimity. Now, it goes on from there. What we want to do is we want to practice a path of renunciation. Buddhism says, I think, that we are already perfect. We simply have too much lust, too much greed, too much hatred, too much delusion. Our job is not to have love. Our job is to get rid of hatred. Our job is not to have generosity. Our job is to get rid of greed. Our job is not to become wise. Our job is to get rid of our ignorance and delusion. I found that to be such a positive message buried in all the talk about suffering, old age, sickness, and death. So as we continue going deeper and deeper into tranquility, what seems to happen is we have to give up physical pleasure first to go any further. And I know physical pleasure is hard to give up. Why were we given this body if it can't be used for pleasure. And all of us are trying to have as much pleasure as we can with this body. And it works really good at 20. (laughs) At 30, it's okay. By the time you get to 50, the body, I don't know if it has more pleasure or more pain. I'm not quite sure yet. (laughs) But if you can figure out a way to give up that physical pleasure you will go into the next level of tranquility. And now you have happiness, this very subtle aspect of happiness, almost like wavelets on a quiet pond, but still distorting the image of the pond when it reflects. And you say to yourself, maybe, maybe, if I could get rid of my happiness, I could quiet that pond down to reflect reality exactly the way it is. Now, you know what? When you give up happiness, you give up sadness. When you give up pleasure, you give up pain. So it's not a bad deal if you can figure out why and how. And now, if the yogi, the meditator, is able to give up their happiness, they go into the final level of tranquility, which is perfect balance of mind, perfect equanimity. At this point in the process, self has become anesthetized. The process of discursive thought for a few moments have come to a halt. You have lost your mind and come to your senses. (laughs) You see with clarity that you are connected to the world around you in a very special way all the time. You have a direct experience of enlightenment. Now, this enlightenment experience does not last forever. The problem, it seems to me, with the enlightenment experience is we keep forgetting. It's not that we don't know it, it's just we've forgotten it. So the Buddhist, as well as others, are meditating every day to remember that they're already perfect, they're already enlightened. They're remembering. When you have this direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena, which I have labeled enlightenment, your heart breaks. 
never to mend again. The Buddhist path, among other things, is the path to a broken heart. Because now, with clarity and kindness, you observe the world. You observe all the people who are homeless. And you've come to understand, through this practice, that it's you who is homeless. You look at the people who are dying of cancer or terminal disease, and you have come to a direct experience of you dying with cancer or terminal disease. If there's one person that's hungry in this world, a part of you is hungry as well. The enlightenment experience changes your life and your path forever. You may not have a choice any longer. You may find yourself helping people for the very first time because those people have become you and you have become them. It's not about being good. It's not about doing the right thing. It's about doing the only thing left for you to do. So enlightenment, even though we, we look at it as being something very special and freeing, it frees us to be of service to others. It frees us to see the world in a way that most people reject and hide from. You can't hide your head in the sand any longer once you've had that enlightenment experience. You have a responsibility now. You have seen it. It's more than being told. People tell us to you know, treat others like ourselves, and we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not Amy Winehouse. <laughs> and, 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 yet, and yet, when you don't have a choice, when your life is being dictated by the suffering in the world, you may end up dressing funny. <laughs> you may end up with no hair. And you may be more fulfilled in your life than you ever have been before. Because now you've decided to give up success and embrace fulfillment. I've often thought that success is the outside symbols we acquire and, and put all around us, our house, our car, our guitars. <laughs> and that fulfillment is something that just keeps filling the heart. And, of course, the heart is bottomless. It can be filled forever. And I have found that sometimes people over 30 start to choose fulfillment over success. And maybe if they're lucky enough, by the time they're 50 or 60, they've given up all thoughts of success and have come to, to live a life of service, to be of, to be of service to others because the others turn out to be us and we turn out to be them. So enlightenment is a very important subject for Buddhists. And the Buddha, it said, was a bodhisattva, someone who had achieved enlightenment at least 550 times before his last rebirth as Siddhartha Gautama, where at the age of 35 he achieved his nirvana and was released from suffering and all future rebirths. But he did that only after he had been a bodhisattva. And he left many bodhisattvas behind 
working tirelessly on ending human suffering. And frankly, we get a long way to go. It doesn't seem to diminish at all. Century after century, it seems to increase, rather. And I'm going to myself, when can I take a vacation? (laughs) How many more lifetimes? How many more lifetimes? So, this, this, I, I hope I was able to show you what enlightenment might be. I was hope I was able to also to warn you that if you take your religious path too seriously, it will change you. Thank you. Okay, well, that was my talk, and now it's time for some blues with Andy Howe, the leader of the in-house One Spirit Center for Conscious Living Band. We're going to play some blues for you. Hope you enjoy it. So here we go. That's it. That was my talk yesterday at One Spirit Center for Conscious Living. 
And the title of the talk was Enlightenment, What a Trip. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to download some free ebooks on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.